Turn together to the Gospel of Luke. Our text this morning is Luke chapter 11, verses 14 through 28. If you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. The word of the Lord is completely without error. The word of the Lord is completely sufficient. And the word of the Lord is completely authoritative. Luke chapter 11. Now he was casting out a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke, and the people marveled. But some of them said, He casts out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons. While others, to test him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul. By whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. Whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me Scatters. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest. And finding none, it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. As he said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. But he said, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Who is Jesus? Seems like an odd question to ask in church, doesn't it? We're all supposed to know who Jesus is. But I think it's a good question that we see in our text this morning. Who is Jesus? And perhaps a good follow-up question is, what does Jesus demand of us? It seems that so many today think they know the answers to these questions. The world is ready to answer these. They know who Jesus is. They put Jesus in their own terms. They cast the character 
and the purpose of Jesus in accordance with their own desires and needs. They want to sit in judgment of Jesus. This is the kind of thought process that allows someone to say, well, I couldn't possibly believe in a Jesus that would say things like that. And therefore conclude he must never have said them. I can't possibly believe in a Jesus that would do things like that. And therefore they conclude he must never have done them. You see, they have cast Jesus in their own image. But the sad reality is, is that that not only goes on outside the walls of the church, it goes on inside the walls of the church in America and throughout the world today. And so this morning, we are pressed upon, challenged by Luke, as we ask ourselves the question, who is Jesus and what do we make of him? And in this, we see that it begins by objecting to Jesus. There are those who begin by objecting to who Jesus is and what He stands for. But the good and gracious Lord Jesus Christ does not leave us in that position. No, He then begins to provide answers to us. The objections to Jesus are responded to by the answers of Jesus. But Jesus continues to press the point home to you and to me. And that is that He presses not only His answers upon us, but His demands as well. So we see here also this morning the demands of Jesus. Objecting, answering, demanding. Let's begin then by looking at our passage here at verse 14. It is an occasion for people to be confronted with Jesus. Luke begins in verse 14, Now he was casting out a demon that was mute. Now we know from studying Luke together that Luke does not put together these stories in strictly chronological fashion. He puts them together in an organized way to make the most of the points that he wants to get across. And so he has just spoken to us about praying and the power of prayer and needing the power of God in prayer from everything from our daily bread to the forgiveness of sins. And so now Luke is about to tell us a story that illustrates the power of Jesus and of our need to follow him. And he tells us a story of a miracle. Now, this has got to be the the shortest miracle story in all of the Bible. It's one verse. It's less than a dozen words. So, what is Luke doing here? Jesus is casting out a demon from a mute. How old was the mute? Did he have a family? How long had he been mute? Where did he come from? We don't know any of these things. And that's because on some level here, the important thing is not the man himself. It's not even the miracle. Keep in mind here that the important thing is the response of people to Jesus' power and the miracle. But in order to understand the response better, we have to think a little bit about this man. Imagine 
if you were this man. You were unable to speak, unable to say words, to say what you were feeling or what you thought or what your opinion was. And you lived in a land with no newspapers, no internet, no televisions. You lived in a land where you and almost everyone you knew could not read or write. Now imagine you're mute. You see, some of us have experienced being unable to talk because of laryngitis or because of a hospital procedure or something of those sorts. And your new best friend usually becomes one of those small whiteboards with the marker in which you write down what you need. Perhaps you've had your tonsils out and you write, Mom, bring ice cream. And you can even show emotion on those little whiteboards, can't you? Now, all capitals, exclamation point, double exclamation point, right? But now imagine you can't write, not because there's no whiteboard, but because you don't know how. You can't communicate to anyone ever. You can't tell them if you're sad or you're happy. You can't tell them why you're afraid. You can, of course, gesture. Your face can have expressions. But you are completely isolated. That's who this man is. And in what seems like a flash, Jesus cures him of this horrible imprisonment. Being imprisoned in his own body. And you can just imagine then what happens. The man realizes he can speak. Hallelujah, he might say. Thank you, Jesus. This is wonderful. I like to think in my sanctified imagination that it's like the top of a bottle has been pulled off. And the words just come rushing out of him. And the people around him see this and are caught up in it. There's joy. There's happiness. There is wonder that so quickly Jesus could change a man's life. But that's not the only reaction that we see. The immediate reaction is praise and thankfulness from the man and from those around him. But there are others who are watching. They respond with antagonism. You see this in verse 15. Some of them said, He casts out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons. Now, why are they doing this? Well, I think the first thing that we must understand is they can't deny that something miraculous has happened. As a matter of fact, they might even have to shout what they're saying to talk over the man who can't stop talking now. There's no way of denying that Jesus is powerful. They can't claim He's a charlatan, a fraud, a con artist. What could they have done? They could have focused on this poor man and his condition. They could have felt sympathy and empathy with Him. They could have perhaps wondered if they were wrong all along about Jesus. The other Gospel accounts tell us that these are Pharisees who make this statement. The enemies of Jesus. They would have loved it if Jesus' miracle would have flopped, but it didn't. And so what do they do? Instead, they throw the worst slander possible at Jesus. They say that He does it by the power of Beelzebul. Beelzebul. 
That even sounds like a rotten name, doesn't it? If a name had a smell, this one would stink. It kind of rolls off your tongue badly. What is Beelzebul? Well, there's a reason why it doesn't sound so good. It's a name that was used of an ancient Old Testament pagan deity. In pagan lands, this was the original Lord of the Flies. That's what it means. But the Jews especially like to use this name for false gods. Because if they pronounced it just a little bit off, it sounded like the Hebrew for Lord of Dung. Now, to say you are the God of the sky is one thing. The God of the sea is another. The God of the cow droppings? I don't think that sounds very good. So, you see, they're insulting Jesus, saying not only is He doing this by the power of evil, by the power of the devil, they're using the worst possible way to describe it. They say that Jesus does this under the prince of the evil ones. Under Satan himself, what they're actually saying is, is that Jesus is the devil's tool. You can't get more insulting than that. Think of how insulting that would be if we said that about you. And you're not God. It's horrible. It's slander. What caused this? Why did they do this? Jesus says elsewhere in the Gospels that out of the heart, the mouth speaks. And this is an example of this. You see, it's indicative of what is in their heart. They weren't worried about this miracle, but their main thought and concern was is that they could not, would not, ever believe in Jesus. They hated Jesus. They wanted to see Jesus fail. And here He is doing something miraculous and powerful. They've got to stop it. What can they do? And the interesting thing is, is that what they do is exactly what happens to people even in America in the 21st century. And that is, if we fail to believe in Jesus, if we deny Jesus Christ, we then become less human. You see this? Focus now off of Jesus for just a moment and back onto the man. Can you believe that in order to win an argument and in order to say to themselves that they were right and that Jesus is not someone to be believed in, they are willing to say out loud, I wish this man was mute forever. The worst thing that's happened today is this man has been cured. Could you imagine that if it happened to you? That if perhaps an occasion in which a loved one or you were recovering from an illness or had seen cancer be defeated. And if someone walked up to you and said, you know, the best thing that could have happened would have been if your daughter would have died. I really wish you were dead right now. I wish you were laid up and crippled. That's inhumane. But you see, this is a lesson for us. There is a link that can never be broken between faith in Jesus Christ and being fully and really human. Caring for others. Thinking of others. Their hearts are laid bare because you see, 
the most important thing for them is not to believe in Jesus. Then there's a second group that we see. They're much more civil. You can almost imagine them standing by the side and as they hear the first group talk about Jesus and the prince of demons, they're thinking to themselves, how crude. Why would you say things like that in public? You see, they're much more civilized. They're much more civil. They don't want to show the same level of hostility. Luke describes them for us this way. There were others who to test Jesus kept seeking from Him a sign from heaven. And so they are acting as if they just want more proof. They might even say they're an honest seeker. If we wanted to put a label on them, they would say that they're not atheists. They're just agnostic. They're not against Jesus. They just need a little bit more proof. You know, I mean, it is one thing for somebody to miraculously heal someone of a demon. That happens, oh, well, okay, maybe it doesn't happen much, but you could do it again, couldn't you? Come on, Jesus. Chop, chop. Do it one more time. Let's see. Two or three times, maybe. Well, no, let's make it a half dozen. You see, they're acting as if they sincerely want proof when really what they want to do is to test Jesus. That's what the text tells us. They want to have authority over Jesus. They want to be in control over Him. They want Him to do their bidding. They want Him to be in their image. And they're never satisfied. Do you see that in the text that Luke gives to us? They kept seeking from Him a sign. Every time Jesus would give a sign, they would want another, and then another, and then another. You've experienced this, haven't you? You're talking with someone and He says, well, just you know, prove to me that this is the case. And you give some facts. Well, give me another one. And you give another fact. No, I want another one. I want another one. After a while, you say to yourself, you don't even care about the question. (laughs) We could be here all day. That's what they're doing to Jesus. They're trying to put Jesus under their control. They're never satisfied. And you see, this is indicative of their hearts also. You see, it was true in Palestine in Jesus' day. It was true in France and England and Germany in the 1400s. And it's true in China and the Sudan and in America today. You can either trust Jesus or not. There's no middle road. And for too many, for far too many, skepticism is simply an excuse that they use to avoid confronting the reality of the world. Maybe you're in this position right now. Maybe you're skeptical about the claims of the Bible and of Jesus. If the Bible is really true, if God really exists, if Jesus really can free me from my sins. But you see, the problem is the more that we focus on that, the less we focus on the reality of our own sin and our own character the less we focus on the reality of death and of judgment that comes to all. You see, skepticism is often used as an excuse to protect us 
from the claims of Jesus upon our lives. This is the opposition to Jesus. Sometimes harsher, sometimes more subtle. But Jesus then does something that is fascinating. He does something that I admit I would not do. And I think perhaps you would not either. If I had just performed a miracle to save a man from the imprisoning effects of being mute, and if people were joyous, and someone accused me of working with the devil to do it, I think I would probably look at them and say, good luck, and go my way. But not Jesus. Do you see what Jesus does? He engages them. He stays with them. He shows even the most wicked of sinners grace and mercy. He will not leave them to themselves. And that's one of the things that makes Jesus Jesus, isn't it? We experience the other in our own lives. We have frustrations with our families. Every once in a great while, a wife might look at her husband and say, I think you need to take care of this this way. And the husband will say, no, I know what I'm doing. Stop nagging me. I got this handled. No, honey, really, I think, I told you I got it handled. And then what do you do, ladies? All right, let's see what happens. And then if your wife is good and gracious, she comes back to help clean up and fix things afterwards. But you see, that's not how Jesus acts. He continues to engage us. It is the glory of Jesus that this side of the judgment, there is nothing that we do to drive His mercy and grace away from us. His demands are still there. They do not change. His claim that you must believe upon Him, that you must trust in Him, that you must follow Him. None of that changes. But Jesus keeps pursuing His people. You see, we like to think that we are the ones who seek and pursue, and we are not. It is Jesus who seeks and pursues. And praise be to the Lord that it is His ability, His grace, His honor that matters, not ours. Jesus knows what's going on in their minds and in their hearts. Luke tells us in verse 17. He knows their thoughts. He could have let them go. But you see, Jesus challenges them. He looks at them and He says, You know, you make no sense at all. Do you see that in verse 17 and 18? He says, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. If Satan were divided against himself, how could he stand? You know how this works. History buffs. The famous speech of Benjamin Franklin. The 13 colonies. United we stand or divided we fall. We can't fight amongst ourselves and fight a common enemy. Benjamin Franklin knew his Bible. You see, Jesus says, if Satan is at work here. Why is he fighting himself? Why wouldn't he be fighting you? You don't make any sense here. And Jesus says, my whole ministry has been marked by conflict with the devil. In the temptation in the wilderness. In the casting out of demons in Luke 4. 
in the casting out of an entire legion of demons in Luke 8. In the rescuing of a boy from seizures from a demon in Luke 9. Jesus says, you make no sense. Stop and think about this. And when Jesus says this, He's reminding them that their hearts and the wickedness inside them have gotten a hold of their minds. They're not thinking clearly. They also are being inconsistent. You see that in verse 19. He says, if I cast out demons by the prince of demons, then who do your sons cast him out by? You know, last week you were bragging on this exorcism that your nephew did. Last month you were talking about how your son and your son-in-law were casting out demons. Who do they cast out demons by? And you see, Jesus is getting at the point, this is not about what's happening, this is about what is in their heart. The inescapable conclusion Jesus brings to them is that God is in their midst. They are experiencing the presence of God. And He uses a phrase filled with rich biblical imagery. He says, but if I, by the finger of God, cast out demons, then the kingdom of God is right here in your midst. Now, this would be ironic. The first time we come across the phrase, the finger of God in the Bible, it's on the lips of the Egyptian magicians. As they explain to Pharaoh that they'd better watch out for Moses. Because it's by the finger of God that he's doing these things that he's doing. Later on, we see God writing with his finger the Ten Commandments on the two tables. Later on, we hear of a report of a kingdom, an empire being weighed in the balance in the book of Daniel as the finger of God writes upon the wall. What is this finger of God? Who is at work here? We get a clue from the other Gospel accounts. The same sentence is used, but it's recorded that Jesus says, but if by the Spirit of God I cast out demons... The finger of God is the Holy Spirit. You see, Jesus is saying, the wickedness of your heart has bound your mind. Get your mind clear. You see, so often we think, as we have to try and explain to people the presence of God and the purpose of God, that what we need to do is we need to fix their minds. We need to give more information. We need to have more knowledge when in reality the problem is not primarily with the mind, it is with the heart. And the heart captivates the mind. The answer of Jesus is, you are in the presence of God and you're missing it. A second answer he gives in the form of a parable. He says, you know, there was this strong man. And he had a palace. And he was fully armed and his goods were safe. And he's describing, of course, Satan. Strong in his strongholds. Powerful and more mighty than men. Relaxing and safe. The way you might be after you turn on the alarm and lock the door. And throw the deadbolt. Right? But Jesus says what happens is a stronger man can prevail over him. Can come in and attack and overcome him. And take away that which in which he's trusted. 
Jesus is describing for us the power of God and what it takes to win a soul. God does not woo. God is powerful and mighty. He is the creator of the universe. He could defeat the enemy. None of the enemy's wiles work against him. None of the enemy's strongholds can stand against him. You have to understand that if you have come to know the Lord Jesus Christ by faith, it is because God has won the victory on your behalf. He has broken the power of the enemy in your life and He has snatched you out and set you up in green pastures. This is the kind of God you serve. And when you think about that, doesn't it make all of our other problems fall into line? When we see the power of God. Jesus is that stronger man and resisting Jesus is futile. There is no power that stands against Jesus. Jesus has answers to His opposition. But He does not stop there. He presses the point further. He brings demands to our life. He then says in verse 23, whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather scatters. And then he tells this story of how there is an unclean spirit that goes out of a person and wanders around. And then when he wants rest, the spirit says, I'll go back to the place where I was. And he sees it all tidied up. It looks good. And that's a metaphor for Reformation in the life of a person. They've cleaned up their act. They've stopped using foul language. They've tried to be kinder to other people. They've tried to be more polite. This is what we try to do, isn't it? We do it to like, to get others to like us. We get it to, we do it to make us think that God will love us. We think if we could just clean up our act, everything will be just fine. If we clean up our act and are spotless, then demons won't want to be in us. Evil will stop tempting us and we'll have victory. But what does Jesus say? The demon comes back and he sees things cleaned up and he says, this is better than ever. I'm going to go get seven friends and really take over. Now we stop and say to ourselves, what does that mean? Does that mean that cleaning up our act is bad? Does that mean that somehow the more moral we are, the more wicked we are? I don't understand, Jesus. But you see, what Jesus is getting at here is the the fundamental point that reformation is not enough in your life. You can clean up your life. But the danger is not in the cleaned up life. The danger is in your heart that you think you are right because of your cleaning. And when you do that, you fall even more prey to the wiles of the devil. Because he has you exactly where he wants you. You see, we think, I think at times, that what Satan wants us doing is outrageous acts of wickedness. That offend everyone and cause others to get sick. And that's not what he wants entirely. He is more than happy to see us living a pristine and clean life and patting ourselves on the back for it and thinking we can do it all by ourselves and we don't need Jesus. Then He has us in His clutches. 
You see, the demands of Jesus are that reformation is not enough. As a matter of fact, when we try and self-reform, it's more dangerous than at the first, Jesus says. So what is our option? There's a second demand that comes from Jesus, and that is that you must choose. You must choose this day. You see it in verse 23. Whoever is not with me is against me. There is no middle ground. There is no Switzerland in the Christian life. Some of us think that we can walk that line, tread that fence, and live in the land of perpetual skiing and chocolate and clocks, and not be affected by everything that goes on around us. But Jesus says, that is foolishness. If you're not with me, you are against me. And we don't like to hear that in modern America, do we? But it's true. The choice comes to us this day. Will we follow Jesus? Will we honor Him? Will we seek His will? Will we understand that we must believe and do according to His command? If we do, then we will truly be known as Jesus' children. Let's pray.